grad school. We're back and we're better than ever. I'm Kate. I'm Dustin, and I, I think I'm I'm probably about the same. I don't know about better would be a good. I'm the same. Okay. <laughs> All right. We have not uh, evolved in in this time. No, I mean it's been like a month month and a half since we last like officially recorded. Obviously, you and I have talked since then, but yeah, I'm pretty much the same. But. I aspire to be better. And in December, I did not aspire to be any different. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm taking that as, and on January 1st, I didn't aspire to be any different. Usually I'm like, it's time for a new year's resolution. And I was not in that mental space, but. Um, I always love the new year's resolutions on the news where it's always like, here are smart goals. And like, you get a week of that and then that's it. <laughs> then they're just dumb goals from here on out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's always funny to me to see like smart goals and especially from like a psychology point of view. Cause like mm-hmm. I've learned about smart goals in a psych framework as like, yeah, you really should be doing this. And I tried to do it. I tutor a uh, middle schooler and I tried to do that with them and mm-hmm. it did not go well. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this like, amazing kid but just not focused at all (laughs) how do you think we could be more focused as a smart goal how could we do that didn't go well let's let's measure it they're like nope i don't want to do this yeah but on the bright side i've been doing smart goals for so long that like when i think of something i i automatically kind of filter it through that framework so i think that's like a huge plus even if you don't accomplish any of your goals at least you start thinking about, are they specific, measurable, attainable, uh, reasonable, and time-bound? Is that right? Realistic is usually the R that I use. What did I say? Reasonable. Oh, yeah, same thing. Oh, same, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll start with our segment called What's New With You? It's a one-time-only segment. So, Dustin, well, what's new with you? Uh about the same what's new with you kate good i have a list of three different things i've prepared for this podcast um i always prepare for the podcast but in particular now so the first thing is i moved my desk that used to face just a white wall and i moved my whole room around and i thought it was gonna look terrible but actually it's really great um and i like face a window now and i haven't realized how much like just sun on my face during the day I've been missing. So I'm like 10 times Mm -hmm. more likely to work at my desk rather than my bed or couch with my head, like fully leaned back in my like laptop, (laughs) like weirdly angled. Oddly enough, that's not great for your productivity or your back or your posture. And so that's, that's been a huge improvement. Um, Who knew that as like a circadian rhythm researcher, that uh, light would be helpful in, goals and things I, I knew it and yet i see like the pro- the only problem is like i had a white or like i had a cork board and i had all my notes because it was like a good but now i'm facing a window so i can't put like notes on the window sticky uh, notes boom yeah but that would look ugly i don't know um all right fine just start <laughs> you get a white uh like a dry erase marker and start uh, drawing on yeah, your window i could do that um <laughs> but also i saw this like neighborhood dog that someone was seeing for a walk just like ambling in the yard in front of my window today and it just it made me really happy um so that's like number one move I've made number two is I gave myself a really bad haircut 
because I was like, <laughs> that's what's new with me. I look worse. Um, because I originally was planning on going to get like a haircut at like a nice place, like spending some money to have my hair finally like shaped in a position that's flattering. Um, and then I just kind of got a little manic and I was like, I'm just going to cut it off myself. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? I'm tired of it being this like, and I really fucked it up. Um, and this is so, the worst that could happen. <laughs> actually, there is one slight, I gave myself a really, really bad haircut last like late spring, early summer. And so it's not as bad as that, but it's one of those things where I'm like, what way can I style this to look like a person? (laughs) (laughs) It'll grow out. It looks okay. Well, I look terrible now, but like it looks uh, okay if I like from a two dimensional standpoint, which is all I needed for Zoom. And I realized this when I cut it. So it might've been why I was a little uh, scissor happy on <laughs> I was like, how many people am I going to see in 3D anyway? You don't already know what I look like, or like, who am I trying to impress? So I'll be growing that out. Uh, and then finally, I came across my favorite tweet, and I think you and I feel pretty similarly about like asper- like inspirational tweets on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, particularly of the grad student variety, because they're basically like, I'm sad, <laughs> and I've been sad <laughs> for a while. <laughs> But I remember that I have a dream. I remember that sadness is not eternal. But who knows? But I finally came across the perfect inspirational tweet that makes me laugh and I love it. So it is, whenever I get discouraged and want to quit something, I remember the words of my then three-year-old after she puked carrots all over the living room floor. I'm going to need more carrots. (laughs) 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 and it's just so good like it's just I've been thinking to myself the last week every once in a while it just pops into my head where I think I'm gonna need more carrots (laughs) I've also been eating a lot of carrots recently so I feel like that it's just really well timed that is our as a grad student are we we're the three-year-old right yes (laughs) we're just we're continuing to do it and we always ask for more yeah, it's like when you get rejected for like your manuscript gets rejected, you don't get a grant, blah blah blah. You're like, I'm gonna need more rejections. I need more. Give it to me. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, that's uh, that ends our segment. What's new with you? Um, but now to what we're gonna discuss today. <laughs> now the serious bit. Now the serious bit. So uh, today we want to talk a little bit about the, and now in Twitter time, it was like three months ago, because as we're recording this, it's all about GameStop. Um, but <laughs> Stonks, Wall Street bets, Elon Musk. Elon. That's it. We're on the top That's of it. the chart. Short, short. The big short, the new big short. There will be a film about it starring short, Jesse, short. what's his name? Jesse, uh, he's the guy who always plays like Mark Zuckerberg-like characters. Oh, yeah. Eyes. Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. Yeah. Featured as a Redditor working from his basement. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so three months to 12 months to two years ago, uh, people were talking about the $15 minimum wage for undergrad RAs. Uh, it kind of led to a lot of other 
interesting discussions and arguments on Twitter, but we kind of want to talk about it from like our take, what's complicated about that. Um, I think we can, you know, Dustin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we both, our opinion is like, you should pay people for work that they do and you should pay them fairly. And so on the face of it, like I would love to say, absolutely, you should pay your undergrads $15 an hour, but it's a lot more complicated than that. So we kind of wanted to kind of dig through that and talk a little bit about why, why it's so complicated and where actual change or like where the problem might lie and like what we can, we don't have solutions. It's just about the problems. <laughs> yeah. That's why you're listening to this podcast to listen to Kate and I have structured slash unstructured discussions about our thoughts and opinions. And then eventually we, I think we're, we're trying to push for change ourselves in what we can do and either within our own labs or our own practices and like advising others to also promote those views, I think. So, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about like your initial thoughts or like what you like things that you were thinking about in regards to this. I think it it's one of those things, like Kate said, is we want people to be acknowledged and paid and compensated for the things that they do. And this is often a uh, like when you're doing a study and you're thinking about participant compensation, like that is a big deal for institutional review boards and making sure that people filling out your surveys is like they're getting compensated appropriately. Um and often one of the things that happens in an undergraduate setting is they get course credit. And that can be one component um, that can be helpful on a CV, potentially. That also brings in other, other aspects of who is able to participate and work for free, basically. Um, or it could be like you're volunteering, which I know I was able to do uh in my i graduated a quarter early we were on the quarter system um so i graduated a little bit early and i didn't have classes i was able to volunteer then and still had a full-time job on top of that um so it's this it's a very difficult balance to play and i think there are lots of components and it's difficult to have a yes this should happen for everybody in all situations like that is a good value to have and to promote, but it's really hard to put those types of things into practice, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, from my own experience, I volunteered half a semester in the lab, uh, in my like undergraduate lab that I uh, spent the most time in while I was working in another lab for credit because I didn't want to be in the, the first lab anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I transferred over to that lab for credit through my senior year. And then I think it was either the fall or the spring of my senior year. I ran out of research credit. Like there's a limit, there's a ceiling Mm -hmm. at least at Cornell that you can take for research credits. And so I had maxed out. And so I just volunteered in the lab for that last semester. And I had have received comments from other people, like, like people who aren't in academia who are like, Oh, like why weren't you getting paid? Cause you were doing work. And this kind of like leads into the complication of because like I never gave it a second thought and and yeah, like I didn't I, either. Yeah, and and I think this is the challenge of it is like 
the reason this is complicated is because a lot of people are, there's like an economy of time spent in Mm -hmm. academia that you're not paid for, but you're either someone's investing in your lab and in return, you're going to write letters of recommendation to them (laughs) forever and mentor them forever. And so in that sense, and like the way it's worked for me, like, I have gotten a huge return on investment for the people, for the person I volunteered for. And uh, my mentor spent countless hours of like unpaid time working with me, advising me, helping me with things that wasn't of benefit to her, but that's also like a marker of privilege. So I want to like also highlight that like some people can't volunteer their free time because they don't have free time because they're paying for undergrads. And so I, I think there's, there are kind of two parts to that. Um, But also uh, you and I have both been project managers before um, for the same job. We are both grad students now and there's the other complicating factor, which is I don't have money to pay undergrads to help me with work that needs to get done. That might like that that money doesn't exist. And so I can only offer them my time and mentorship. And in my, in my viewpoint, like that's a very fair trade because it is time spent that like I could be doing another job or something like that. Um, Yeah. Work in a lab that has longitudinal data. And so there is a larger grant funded project that, that operates and provides data that I am able to use um, but in like thinking about what I'm launching for my dissertation, there are other components that I need to think about. And as a graduate student, yeah, we we already don't get paid a whole lot. And then on top of that, trying to be able to provide resources for undergraduates, which we think like payment wise would be adequate and we'd want to to promote that and show it's like also a modeling piece where you're like, Hey, you're doing good work. Here is money for it. (laughs) Um, Instead it is, which is still a value to some that you as a graduate student are able to provide mentorship about the experience that you have had and provide some support if they wish to go along that path. But that's not always the case for students, I'd say. And it is like one of the things that I've been thinking about more frequently for undergraduates, like trying to think about this whole research pipeline. And it is very, like you said, we never thought twice about, yeah, we'll volunteer and it's fine. Like that was just something we were socialized. Like this is being offered. I'm going to do it. And it's not a big deal. Um, And I think we, we both acknowledge the privilege that we had in being able to do that. And, but it's also like a norm within the field. It feels like, would you say different? Absolutely. I I, I think it's changing a little bit or like I've noticed undergrads that I've come across or like undergrad areas, they're more protective of their time. And I, Mm -hmm. I have like good feelings about that for the most part. Like people are like, well, I'm not going to work a holiday. And I'm like, that's fair. It, it never yeah. occurred to me to not work a holiday before. And I've had like, I think three undergrads or people like who have just been like, well, I'm not working this. Cause it's a, like, I'm not 
I can't get this to you at this point because it's a holiday. And at first I would, and I'm not talking about like major, like Thanksgiving or like, they're like, like minor, like bank holidays. (laughs) They're like, uh, no, I'm taking the time off where you don't have school. And I, it's something I really admire about them. And I'm like, oh, I never did. And it's, it also makes me push up against the, well, I did this when I was, yeah. Cause like sometimes that's my first reaction and it's not good. And I'm grappling with the, Oh, that's kind of an asshole thing to think first. I'm like, because I didn't have boundaries, you shouldn't. Um, and then I obviously correct and think about it, but um, <laughs> I do think it's okay for RAs to expect to get something out of their experience, like to get some either huge professional thing, not just like the like vague experience thing. But um, I think if you work for my lab for credit or you volunteer some of your free time, then I'm going to try like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm being a little bit of broken record here, but like, I do have a value and a service in editing people's papers. And that's something that I could get paid a lot for, but mm-hmm. I do for free. Um, and I also volunteer, try to volunteer for people who might not have the resources or background to kind of do that. But um, that's kind of the underground economy. But I also, there's also this other thing is undergrads when they initially are invested in and you're giving them the tools for like data analysis and things like that, the things that they're going to need in grad school, that's like more teaching than uh, it, it kind of crosses over teaching plus training. Um, it takes a semester of investment in an undergrad before you can kind of, let them go and do their own thing. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It took me that time, probably more. Um, but RAs are going to take a lot of time investment to be helpful RAs. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's like, it's investment on your end as the researcher. And then also as an undergraduate, like they could probably be doing a lot of other things than spending the semester just trying to learn this specific process that may eventually benefit them down the road. And that was like in thinking about that research pipeline is how do undergraduates have that diversity of experience within labs? Maybe there will be few who are thinking, yes, I'm going to be a hundred percent cognitive psych or developmental or clinical, or like they have that view and that passion, but others it's, I want to see. And being able to look at multiple labs, look at like multiple hours of time invested, that might be a sunk cost. Like, yes, they will know, I know I don't want to do this, but that that's it. And like, if they go a whole semester or a whole year, which sometimes because of the investment that researchers put into undergraduates and RAs, like they might require more than a semester for you to stick around and like be brought on. Yeah. It's always hard when you like, for example, when you're hiring, like bringing on RAs who are juniors in college, cause you spend a year investing in them and, and then they have about a year where they're, they are available and what you can hopefully have is RAs who teach RAs, but that is asking a lot yep. of leadership and a lot of skills that undergrads, who are smart and capable, but it takes a while to gain those skills of learning how to teach other people and learning how to be a leader in your own lab. Um, And so it's just this like really tricky thing. And I've also, you and I have both been burned before by RAs who 
like they make it through the interview rounds and they're not good. Like I, I, I'm trying to be generous here, but like sometimes you get RAs who are not good at being RAs and they don't care about, like they want it for their CV um, or they don't know what they want. And then the ones they who don't know what they want and more charitable towards them <laughs> in retrospect, because it's like, Oh, this just like, wasn't a good fit for you. Um, and you needed to figure it out. I'm disappointed because I spent a lot of time investing in you, but yeah. The yeah. ones who get their CVs and then don't work hard and just kind of coast along. I have no sympathy for them. Bad. Um, <laughs> that's another, that's a different problem. That just like really sucks because you've invested a lot of your free time in them and you still kind of invest in your time after because some of those people ask for letters of recommendation for you. Same confusingly because it, it, they didn't do a good job. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Or they ask you for meetings or advice. And I've done those things and I kind of continue to do them probably because I'm still bad at setting boundaries um, being like, hmm. <laughs> um, but that's also, those are sunken costs and for those people, not the people don't know what they want. Um, but it's not the most efficient way to run a lab. And that is the kind of, other balances. If you're paying someone, if you're paying someone fifteen dollars an hour, um, or if you're paying someone any money, like any money, <laughs> any amount, mm -hmm. then I think I expect things a little differently from them. Like I expect a little more of a work product, mm -hmm. whereas like there's a little bit of a mentorship. On the other hand, you should pay people your training. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But there were two parts where I read this, which is like $15 for an hour for undergrads. And I was like, great in theory. I also know a lot of people in their post-bac jobs who did not make $15 an hour and who probably should yeah. have. And so I get really frustrated by that for two reasons. One is like a lot of times those salaries are very divorced from the cost of living where they are. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is as we increasingly expect people to have post-bac experiences when they're going to like you need to pay them more because they are like they are delaying financial security by another two to four years um, by being underpaid and then going into graduate school where they are paid even less. And so um, yeah. it shows a real lack of like care and attention to how the changes in the field are going to affect individuals. Um and so the $15 an hour stuff is also just really important, especially considering in your second year on the job, you're, you can subtract $2,000 of that salary, whatever you're giving someone going straight to applying to grad school costs. And I did the math on this two weeks ago. You can find it on my Twitter, but uh, I was paying roughly 6% of my pre-tax uh, income on applying to grad school. So you pay a 6% tax on your already taxed income. <laughs> I have decided not to do that calculation right now because that might make me sad. It made me pretty <laughs> sad. Uh, it made me a lot less sad than it would have if I had done it last year. I kind of was like, I'm going into some credit card debt to do this. And hopefully I'm going to rebound from this financial hit. Um and again, in, in six to 10 years, in six to 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I've, 
I've taken some other jobs and kind of uh, hopefully going to pay that off soon, which I'm real excited for because then I can start actually. Uh, have you heard of savings? <laughs> Before grad school, I had a savings. Yeah, I had a savings. Before, like, yeah, I was like, and then now it's like, no, let's just do a checking account. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I just like, um, that's, and that's another level to it where like, People don't expect grad students to have normal adult fun, like adult financial concerns. Um, Mm -hmm. And that maybe made sense. It still didn't, but it made a little more sense when you're talking about 21 to 26 year olds. And again, it's the privilege of academia because they probably weren't concerned 20 years ago because they were the kind of people who there were more people who were from the upper class because they had no financial limitations and so I just uh I think when you're thinking about it was largely the discussion that I saw on Twitter was largely centered on undergrads but there is again the post back argument for fair salaries getting a raise in your second year wild mm-hmm. um and again like to kind of my next point is we can't it would be very simple to blame PIs for this problem um, because, you know, they, some of them make six figure salaries, not all of them, obviously I don't want to like, but um, I originally was like, yeah, what the hell PIs. And then I kind of thought about it a little bit and there's a harder central, there's like a central system, centralized system that sets the rates for like what you can pay, right. Um, Your grad students and that's where the pro- that's where part of the problem lies. And then, like, where is that money coming from? Too, like, what funding agencies? And we talked a little bit about this before. That sometimes you can, yeah, you can only allocate so much to stipends or to salaries um, from a grant perspective. And then, on top of that, like, what is the cost of? Like, what are other fees that might be in that or how much each university? I think each university from a grant perspective takes a different amount away to, like, cover overhead costs um, because universities make a lot of money off of grant-funded research because then it allows them to continue other things. Um, But it, it would be really nice to see that transparency, I think, from a grad student perspective and just from any perspective and knowing where where this funding is going um and who it's being allocated to and where there might be certain holdups or just like accumulations of unnecessary funds and like it's a easy thing to say that we can just cut funding from certain areas but it's I think it would be nice to have that transparency as a grad student be like, oh, this is low because I don't know. I don't even like <laughs> because I get crappy health insurance. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, but yeah, no, no, no. Like I had someone explain it to me once and it um, it made sense. It was frustrating, but it wasn't. I was less frustrated with the PI after like, and I like realized that they were frustrated with the system too, which is, it's like hard, right? Cause like you need to pay for when a grad student is on a grant, I believe. And if I'm wrong, please correct 
people in the audience, uh, please correct me. Um, uh, email we, us. This is a live this podcast. Live. We have an yeah, audience. Yeah, I meant like our audience consists of Moakley and crying in the background. Um, I, have not, I have nothing in my office right now. <laughs> but anyway, um, to our audience. Uh, but it's something like they when they take on a grad student RA, they're not just taking on the grad students RA for the semester. You kind of said this, but like they it does also cover like their cost of their tuition, which is interesting. Uh, and especially if you're not taking any classes <laughs> um, and these other costs, um, like you said, insurance, um, there's some other costs I'm thinking of, but um, these so if you have a grad student, a part-time grad student on your grant and you're paying for 50% of their time, it might cost you $60,000. Like, oh my God, grad students are not taking home $60,000. They're taking at home best, like $25,000 roughly, um, if I'm averaging programs. Um, and that's, yeah. that's maybe highballing it too. Um, I think there's a little but Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's like not doing, there are sometimes other things that you can do either within a department or like outside to get some extra cash, but it's not, it's like, it's hard. Cause then you, this gets again to like how we allocate our time and where that sits and what we actually get paid for, what is valued by the field and what like makes sense. But that's a, a separate issue. You were actually trying to make a point. of No, that's, <laughs> yeah, it it's hard. Cause like, also I, I saw this on, uh, Twitter from a reliable source. I didn't just see this on Twitter. Um, but like R1s or like R01s, the amount hasn't gone up in the last 10 years or something insane like that. Like the amount that you get for an R01. And obviously we know costs have gone up, like overhead has gone mm -hmm. up. And so it just puts people in a really unfair position. And in a lab that I was in where like we had multiple R01s, like I think something like RA time was like, like like a hundred ten percent of my RA time was like accounted for in grants or something like that, and I was like, well, I'm not working a hundred percent. It's like they budget for one RA or they budget for two RAs, and mm -hmm. the money, the way what you ask for doesn't mean that's where it's going to end up. But it's just it was a really interesting insight into like how how applying for funding works, how it happens, and like these how time has just not like a, we have not accounted for inflation at all in any sort of substantial way for academia and that's the same for grad student stipends but um you know before we wrap up we have like you know like 10 minutes left i i did want to hear a little bit about another discussion related to the 15 dollars an hour which is like what are you paid for clinical work and how clinical training works so i i think first you just say this is a little separate from like RA training. RA training is easier in some ways, um, depending on the skill set. Um, clinical training is a very long process that's complicated and you you need great RAs, obviously, but you really, really need great clinicians. <laughs> I think we realized this in the in the middle of a pandemic and all of the mental health challenges it faces. So I'll talk a little bit about that finally we're getting some recognition us clinicians <laughs> um usually the the way that training goes is there is a and this again 
can can vary from program to program, at least the experiences that I have and have seen and heard from others is there is a like in-house clinic that operates and all of the clinicians there are graduate students and are supervised by like the clinical faculty and the patients that are seen are usually from the community and it operates on what's called a, a sliding fee scale. So because we're not licensed clinicians, we're, we don't charge insurance. Like we don't usually bill insurance and it's based on a income. It's like it's income based payment. And I think that that is, it's really great for, for folks seeking treatment. And I think it's, there are other things that need to be talked about when it comes to mental health accessibility. Um, but it's, it's part of our, like it's expected of us in our, our training and thinking about. And uh, when it comes to like at a certain point, you are doing, you're taking classes, you're doing all of your research duties, and then you have to have a caseload of clients um, so you get supervision, you do all that. If you have a client who is, who is able to pay the weekly fee, um, you don't see any of it. It's usually put into a fund at the university that I think is used for something. I don't know. Um, and so although someone is paying for the services, like the, the provider doesn't get that maybe it will go towards like buying manuals for the clinic. I'm not sure. And that could vary again by, by university or by program. Um, and then you go into the community, most likely at, as you're an advanced graduate student, you take externships uh, where you actually go into the community, might be in a mental health clinic, might be at an outpatient setting, might be who knows what. And because you're a trainee, you aren't typically able to bill insurance. Um, so there might be something worked out where individuals aren't paying. So then it gets put on as like a, uh, they have a no show or the, the time that you see a client or a patient as a clinician, trainee clinician, um, isn't paid for by anyone immediately. But then sometimes the organization more broadly then attributes those hours as um, like free service to the community. And then that lowers the entire company's kind of like bottom line in a way um, that it it's. If you look closely at it and have a negative view or I don't know, I don't want to put any any. Uh, words to this but just that it like the the clinician themselves they get the training um but often like therapy is expensive that it is and that is a whole other issue but oftentimes like it is hundreds of dollars per hour and that is just getting put onto the bottom line potentially and like then you don't see that money as a clinician even though you're providing top-notch services and like as a as a trainee, I think the services that you provide <clears throat> are at times better than what you would receive in a t 
typical therapy session because you are getting the expertise of the trainee and then you're also getting a licensed supervisor able to like review tapes and review things and be on top of that whereas when you go to therapy somewhere um that might not be the case and you don't know what they're what they may or may not be doing which is a whole other discussion maybe we'll have a an offshoot <laughs> you can clinical you can clinical school so yeah yeah i mean that's that's something i think is fascinating and i spent less since i left the clinical aspirational world i was never a clinician but like um something i've thought less about but it is like such a weird system of who can call themselves a therapist they're really broad they're different Mm -hmm. who can bill what has changed and so it's just a really hard system um to make sense of but it also it, it it's frustrating to me to hear like there are so many programs um in, I know friends who are in the business world or the tech engineering world, and they pay you a great salary, especially out of undergrad, to train for a year and to become in to become trained for a year. And they pay you livable yep. because they know that training is work, and they want their people to be well trained. And but they also realize the value of that. I'm not saying we should privatize this, but like it it does like it just does frustrate me that like we in the midst of a global pandemic, we're seeing how important, like we've always, you and I have always kind of seen this. So it's not like a surprise, but suddenly people are like, wow, suicide is a real problem. We need to think about how we structure our society and we need to have mental health services more widely available, like fucking duh. Like, but also Mm -hmm. that's fine. Some people, like, if you haven't dealt with mental health stuff, like, or know anyone who has, like, surprising. Um, But also, maybe it hasn't occurred to you. Um, But, yeah, it's frustrating to see, like, systems that just don't value it and limited ability for grad students to make a difference and to help people, like, if they're interested in coming into mental health. And training the people who want to make the world a better place and to help people like ease suffering or find solutions. And um, I'll, I'll end on one thing that like, I found really annoying is that so med school and clinical um, programs application rates have gone way up and everyone like, is like, Mm -hmm. it's the Fauci effect. And I was like, no, (laughs) it's another correlation isn't causation. Um, It's, but um, it's a lot harder to find a career path in mental health that fairly compensates you for the time that you've invested in your own training. And that's, you know, across the board, whether you're a researcher, a clinician at a PhD level at an MSW um, in psychiatry, I believe in the field of medicine is one of the lower paying specialties. Um, but these are all things that we want to change. And I think if more people were aware of and, if I plan, I love to annoy people with these kinds of things. So if you want to annoy your non-mental health people into talking about thinking about fair ways to solutions for this, then we think it's important. Uh, we have to wrap up. So to head into our final segment of future directions. So Dustin, do you want to go first or do you want me to do, do you have something locked and loaded? I do. I have been, just like it won't be a surprise if you're a longtime listener 
I've been reading more and more and I was able to read Lovecraft Country over the break. It is it is really it does a nice job at balancing the like taking the science fiction components and balancing it with some issues that are that have been prevalent for ages but are really at the forefront in these last couple of years um with just racial injustice and inequality and the what is the the experience of those individuals and i i really enjoyed it it was similar to um like watching the new series of Watchmen, where like that nice balance between like what is real and what is this like made up fantasy, and then turns out we suck as people. <laughs> so it's a happy episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I we had already talked about maybe we talked about this on the podcast, but I loved like Watchmen was so good. Um, yeah, re recommend. Um, yeah, mine is a. My two recommendations are, well, kind of three-ish. So it's we'll start with the book stuff, which is I made a resolution that, or I made the decision finally that I'm not going to read Beowulf by Shane Massini. I'm, uh, <laughs> this is about not spending time on things that are finally that you don't, you shouldn't have to do. You shouldn't do things that you feel like you have to do if you don't have to do them. So I love Seamus Heaney and his poetry. Like I have read, I would say more than, more than most people of Seamus Heaney. Um, And I'm a huge fan. And so I, a few years ago, I bought Beowulf by Seamus Heaney and I have tried, I think I'm halfway through the book, maybe cumulatively. I can't remember. I'll read a sentence and immediately forget it. I just cannot get into Beowulf as a story. I don't know why, but like, and I just felt like as a Seamus Heaney fan, I should read this book. And I've been talking mm-hmm. to people about, I'm re I'm starting. <laughs> and I just finally decided I'm, it's like, it's right here. So I look to the right of me and there's Beowulf. I'm, I'm going to give myself 10 years to not read it. I don't need to read it. Maybe forever. Because it's just like, I don't find it interesting. And I just, I was like, but if I really love Seamus Heaney, then I would, like, I have a Seamus, his final words tattooed on my body, like, <laughs> that I should read Beowulf. But I don't want to. And so I'm not going to. And in line with this, it's not, like, worth my time to read a book that I, like, am not that interested in. It, it's not going to make me a better person, probably. Um, and along with that is I recently, like, there is this person who's been in my life for a while and like the outskirts of my life who is mean and not kind and kind of a jerk. And I finally kind of told them like, I don't think we should be in contact anymore because you are persistently awful. (laughs) And I don't advocate for burning bridges in general. I think like you should try and get along with everyone, but this has been a like eight year long trying to get along with this person and them consistently not being respectful or kind to me or people I care about. So I finally just was like, we're done. I'm not going to read Beowulf and I'm not going to be friends with you. (laughs) We're not going to talk. And um, I think that's been really healthy for me. And I'm someone who in the past has had trouble setting like good boundaries for like unhealthy unhealthy friendships. Um, Cause they didn't want to hurt someone's feelings. And I think this was a great choice for me. And so I'm kind of proud of myself for doing that. And I would recommend if you have given someone a lot of chances and they don't respect you, then you don't need to continue interacting with them. 
as long as it doesn't hurt you professionally. And if that happens, then I'm sorry. Um, and then that's a different, that's a different problem. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is bourbon with an orange peel has just really elevated my like cocktail game. It's not really a cocktail. It's just bourbon <laughs> with an orange <laughs> peel. <laughs> but uh, I've really thoroughly enjoyed having that um, maybe like once or twice a week um, before I go to bed. I've been reading Love in the Time of Cholera and drinking my bourbon. And that's been a fantastic thing and I would highly recommend it. That's it. I like it. All right. Join us next month. <laughs> Just kidding. Join us next, next time we whenever throw up an episode. Um and in the meantime, like please check out our our seminar that we did or our two days of learning. Uh if you are someone who's new to R, it's great. Dustin does a fantastic job teaching. And uh, hopefully, if I get my shit together, we'll have a blog page on it soon. <laughs> I don't have high hopes. <laughs> Happy Wednesday, Thursday. Or wh- whenever you're listening to this. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. The You Can Grad is on a vacation. Yeah. <laughs>